Katie was picking up after her kids when she found it, tucked between the mattress and the box springs of her teenage son's bed. She winced as she rolled it up and walked back to her room. First anger, then tears. As a single mom, she would have to confront him after school. Or maybe she could just let it go. Sometimes God calls us to do hard things. Tyrese was wrapped up in an expense report when he noticed some items that seemed out of place. He shot an email to his boss, and the reply came quicker than usual. Just do the report. Don't ask questions. Tyrese's eyes widened. He realized what he was being asked to do. But if he wanted to advance in the company, he'd have to ignore it, wouldn't he? Sometimes God asks us to do hard things. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, has just finished a long section on how we are supposed to live together as Christians in our various relationships. He looks at husbands and wives. He looks at parents and children. He looks at bosses and workers. And he comes to this point in verse 10, and he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. What does it mean to be strong? Well, to be strong, this idea of strength, comes from this word that means inward power. It's the same word where we get our word for dynamite. Inward strength, inward power, to be strong. But ironically, this inward power doesn't come from you. It's to be strong, where? In the Lord. In the strength of His might. It's an inward strength that doesn't come from inside of you. It's the strength that Paul writes back in chapter 1. The same strength that works in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. This strength, this power, when, when, when Paul says, be strong in the Lord, he's saying, you need resurrection power. You need resurrection power. So how do we go about being strong in the Lord? Well, there's an outline for you in your bulletin if you turn one more page. We're going to look at three parts of this passage. First, know your adversary. Second, know your armor. And third, know your allies. Know your adversary, know your armor, and know your allies. These are three ways that we can be strong in the Lord. Verse 10 reads this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. The first way we can be strong is to know your adversary. Know the enemy. And first, your adversary is not flesh and blood. 
So often when we think about it, so often when we face trials and, 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 and difficulties and challenges as those that were mentioned earlier, we look to other people as the enemy, don't we? As a husband, we say, well, she does this and she does that. I mean, if you've ever sat in on marriage counseling, she does this, he, but he, but he does this. I, I mean, I may do a little something, but he, right? It's battling, wrestling against flesh and blood. Or what about your parents? What about your coworkers? And what about politics for crying out loud? I mean, who is the enemy? Is the enemy political progressives who push diversity and march for social justice? Are they the enemy? Some may call them communists or criminals. Or is the enemy political conservatives who want to make America great again? You may call them racist or bigots. Who is the enemy? Church, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Jesus said, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him some water. The church doesn't grow by taking up arms, but by laying down our lives. Paul wrote in his letter to the Corinthians, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Think about this. This is practical, y'all. When you start to get angry at another human being, whether it's your spouse or a political candidate or your neighbor or whoever, when you start to get angry, remember this truth. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It will give you perspective. And it will give you patience. And it will give you peace with your neighbor. Your adversary is the devil. It is rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That is our enemy. The common thread in all of these descriptions that are given here is power. They all have power. Look at it. Rulers, authorities, powers, Forces of evil. And then he says that, that this present darkness is the situation we find ourselves in. And that lets us know that the devil does have some power. That, that there is a present darkness that we all live under and in right now. That the redemption that Christ has accomplished is complete, but it's not yet consummated. We live in a present darkness and we need to understand that. As a spiritual being, the devil is not someone that you can see. He's, 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 he's running a covert op. We get back to the military terminology. Paul describes his warfare in verse 11 as schemes. The devil runs schemes. What is a scheme? A scheme is a secret or an underhanded plan. The devil uses tactics of deception and misdirection to get at you, believer. There are two major schemes that I want to point out here that the devil uses over and over. The first is a behavior scheme. You know, the prophet Isaiah said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. For those who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Sometimes the devil just wants to get you to think that something evil is good. 
Evil rarely looks evil. Think about that. Evil rarely looks evil until it's done with you. Then it looks evil. When you're looking back on it, man, that was evil. But you wouldn't do it if you knew it was evil. It's a deception. It's a scheme. It's a way that Satan attacks you. It's a baited and camouflaged trap. Evil is made to look attractive. You know, think about how the devil tempted Jesus. You know, turn these stones into bread. Something good. Something attractive. How did Eve fall into sin? It looked good for food. Right? It looked like it would it looked, it looked pleasing to the eye. So she took it and ate. Sometimes he schemes to get us to think that what is good is evil and what is evil is good. That's the first tactic, behavior. The second one has more to do with belief. John, the Apostle John, wrote this, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Sometimes if the devil can't fool you into thinking that evil is good, he'll, get, he'll change your beliefs. He'll get you to question your beliefs, what you know to be true about God. And if the devil can shift your faith away from trusting God to trusting financial security or the government or our own abilities to perform or anyone but God, if we put our faith in anyone but God, the devil has, has won that battle. And we fall away from him in that. Every culture... And we all represent different cultures. Every culture demands our allegiance. Every culture wants to be your God. Every culture wants to be your God. And it can become so attractive to think that if I just stick with what I know and my people, then everything will be okay. What is the thing that you place your confidence in? Background. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He's, 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 he's interjecting a false belief into our lives. This is one of the schemes that the devil does to get you to think about your particular beliefs, your cultural beliefs as God. They become God to us and God becomes secondary. This is one of the reasons why politics is so divisive. It's it's a hard area for Christians because sometimes we believe that men or women are our enemies. Because in politics, they do have some measure of power. And so when we read, and I think it's, it's on purpose that Paul uses these words, rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces, to get us to think about politics because that's the one who has the power, right? They have the power to tax, the power to to wage war, the power to do a lot of different things. But he's getting us to see that it's not really the physical powers or rulers or authorities that, that are our enemy. It is the spiritual forces of evil that are our enemy. It appears that they have power, but they don't. And if I'm just being real, and I'm going to, because I'm the guest preacher, you can't fire me. Some people voted for Donald Trump 
because they were afraid of the power that would be given to Hillary Clinton. Some people voted for Hillary Clinton because they were afraid of the power that would be given to Donald Trump. Some voted for a third-party candidate because they were afraid of power being given to either one of those guys. And some combination of all of those, maybe. But, but politics is not where power lies, dear friends. The true power, the true enemy, is the devil and the spiritual forces of evil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not. We should be engaged in the political process, but we should never let politics get in the way of loving our neighbors. And I confess I've done that this week. I've done that. I've let politics get in the way of loving my neighbors. And I'm sure some of you have too. So let us take our anger and our frustration to prayer. And let us take our relief and our elation to prayer too. Your adversary is going to attack when you are off balance. Look back with me at the scripture. It says in verse 11 that we are to stand against the schemes of the devil. In verse 13, we are to withstand in the evil day. In verse 13, again, we are having, having done all to stand firm. This idea of standing is repeated over and over because Paul is envisioning close contact with the enemy. He is envisioning hand-to-hand combat. Spiritual warfare is fought in the trenches, not with a drone from an an air-conditioned space. And so your stance, spiritually speaking, should be one foot in front of the other, shoulder-width apart, knees slightly bent, ready for hand-to-hand combat with the enemy. Think about what gets you off balance. When, when are you caught standing straight or slouching in your life? Is it when things are going well, when you've had a victory? And perhaps, you know, you kinda, you're not as much on guard. Think about King David. When he fell into temptation with Bathsheba, what was he doing? He was off guard. He wasn't standing firm. All the other kings were out to war, and here's David just slouching. That's when the devil attacked with that temptation. We need to know our adversary and know his schemes. But we also need to know the armor that God gives. We need to know the armor that God gives. Look with me at verse 14. Stand, therefore, there's that word again, stand, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul is writing this letter from prison. He is a POW. And... Some commentators believe that when he envisions this armor, he's thinking of a Roman soldier. And that could be part of his inspiration. But really, all of these images of armor are in the Old Testament. 
And I want to just read a selection of passages from Isaiah the prophet and from Proverbs, just to give you an idea of where some of these images are coming from, from the Old Testament. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth or the sword of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and truth and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do you see that that imagery coming out of Isaiah, coming out of the Proverbs? Paul is picking up on that and 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 he's putting it into practice here to tell us how God equips us for battle. And amazingly, I had a conversation with um, one of the members here this week. I wanted to get, what is this like in today's military? Some of you have served. What is this like in today's military? So I'm going to try to relate this, all of these, to modern day warfare. Um, So, you know, let's be gracious to me as I try to do this, okay? Um, The first item is the belt of truth. Well, modern soldiers wear a utility belt. That secures their clothing. It secures their firearm. It has pouches for carrying gear. And it can also carry extra ammunition. And it's right there, accessible, easily accessible. So the truth should be accessible. Truth, what is truth? Truth is objective reality. God gives us access to truth in two ways. First, through Creation, through general revelation, through education and history, math, science, psychology, etc. We can gain the truth from education. But we also gain truth, knowledge of truth through special revelation, through God's word. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. And then he said, your word is truth. There has always been an attack on objective truth. That is not a new thing. The devil questioned Eve in the garden. Remember? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What was the devil doing? He was calling into question the truth that God had given to Adam and Eve. Right there, from the very beginning, objective truth has been called into question. And I see it every week. Um, my, My fourth grader came home... Uh, a couple weeks ago with a poem that he had been asked to memorize. I'm going to read the poem to you. Here's what it says. Some of you saw it on Facebook. There is a voice inside of you that whispers all day long. I feel that this is right for me. I know that this is wrong. No teacher, preacher, parent, friend, or wise man can decide what's right for you. Just listen to the voice that speaks inside. And I was like, we need to talk about this. (laughs) Because why? Because that represents a worldview that is prevalent today in in the unbelieving world. And, And if we're honest with ourselves, it's prevalent in our own hearts as well. We can think this way too. Um, so my son and I sat down and we, we talked through how he might respond to his teacher in love and, you know, but, but maybe question and say, so, 
it says no teacher can tell me what's right, so does that mean I have to do my homework? Like, ask the question, you know, I mean, respectfully, but ask, you know, ask the question. <laughs> I don't think you did it, but that's okay. We must know the truth as God has revealed it in his word, objective truth, unchanging, and we must train our children in it. Second is the breastplate of righteousness. Modern soldiers wear breastplates. They wear bulletproof Kevlar vests. And these breastplates protect the vital organs from small arms fire and from shrapnel. Righteousness as our breastplate in this context is not talking about the imputed righteousness that we have by faith. It's not really talking about that. It's talking about the the outworking of righteousness in our lives. It's an external device. It's, it's, it's living out goodness and morality and uprightness in the day-to-day. And all of this goodness and this righteousness comes from God. It's really His character. It's His actions. He is righteous. And He calls us to live in His righteousness, to live it out in day-to-day. How will people see God but through our actions of righteousness? It's His righteousness lived out. When we put on God's righteousness and we live a life of love, when we do the right thing in those situations, God is honored and we are strengthened and protected. Our hearts are protected by that Kevlar vest, that, that, that breastplate of righteousness. God does call us to do hard things. And he gives us the strength to do the right thing in those situations. Third, the shoes of gospel peace. This one's a little confusing, but the scripture says, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Modern soldiers wear leather, waterproof, steel-toed combat boots. And they protect the feet from the elements, and they're made for long marches. Through the gospel, we have peace with God. You know, if you think, Vertically, we have peace with God. And therefore, we have peace horizontally with our neighbors. Paul, in this letter to Ephesians, if you go back and read this letter to the Ephesians, he is very interested in underlining the peace that Christ gives us across cultures. And he says that there's, there's hostility that exists between Jew and Gentile. And we see that today, don't we, in our, in our different cultures. We see hostility. You know, um, moving back home uh, two years ago, here, almost two years ago, and doing ministry in Orangeburg and attempting to plant a church um, that reflects the diversity of Orangeburg, I have bumped into a lot of these dividing walls from the white community and from the black community and from other, other communities within those, from the rich, from the poor, I've run into these dividing walls. And, y'all, this week has underlined one of those dividing walls, and I'm just going to say it. 90% of Bible-believing whites vote Republican. And 90% of Bible-believing blacks vote Democrat. Bible-believing folk, evangelical folk, have different opinions about politics. Now, 
the hostility this week is on fire, isn't it? That's what I feel like I've gotten caught up in some. How do we handle this hard situation that God has called us to? Because you talk about dividing walls. I mean, that is, that's it. There's, that's a huge one. There are many others, but that is one. What do we do? Well, we put on our gospel peace shoes. We put on our gospel peace shoes. Here's how we can do that. The first thing is to just admit that your party or your policy preferences are not God. Whatever they are, they're not God. And realize that every culture is totally depraved. Even ours, even yours, every culture is totally depraved. That's why we need grace. Because even our best deeds are like filthy rags. Even the best candidate and the best vote is tainted with sin. And so we need to be honest about that and admit that to ourselves. That even if it was perfect, it wouldn't be, right? And this certainly hasn't been. I think we can all agree with that. And then secondly, extend grace to fellow believers within the church or across different churches who disagree about political solutions. But don't just extend grace, extend the conversation. You have genuine questions about how could someone vote such and such a way. That's where we need to engage with folks and say, you know, I know you're a believer. Help me understand how you can support such and such a policy. Engage your neighbors in these conversations, especially within the church. Um, And don't be afraid to say, I don't see it that way. Because we do have differences of opinion. That's okay. We're all aiming to please the Lord. The shield of faith. These, these last three are going to be quicker. Um, the shield of faith. Modern soldiers actually still use shields. Uh, not in all circumstances, but in certain, especially urban environments, um, they have ballistic shields that serve to uh, stop small arms fire and cutting or stabbing weapons. Um, in a war zone, infantry use armored vehicles, such as the Bradley fighting vehicle, that actually serve as a type of shield to get the infantry down where they need to be. Faith protects us against doubt, temptation, and lies like a shield, like a Bradley fighting vehicle. And it's not the, 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 the character of your faith, it's not the strength of your faith, but it's the object of your faith that matters. Um, there's this quote from Robert E. Lee in whom many of, his, um, many of his soldiers were putting a lot of faith in him. And here's what he said, I tremble for my country when I hear of confidence expressed in me. I know too well my weakness that our only hope is in God. So who do we place our faith in? Not in man, but in God. The shield of faith. And then the helmet of salvation. Modern soldiers wear helmets. They wear Kevlar helmets to protect their brains, to protect their minds. We need to have a salvation mindset. The helmet of salvation means that we must always be thinking about our salvation, our we, we did not save ourselves. We, have, we are people who needed to be rescued. We were floundering out there in the, in the sea of sin and shame and guilt 
and God rescued us. And so we need to have that mindset of being rescued. It empowers our forgiveness. You know, um, forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. This will result in an attitude of thankfulness and of humility as we have a, a mindset of salvation or a helmet of salvation. And last, the sword of the Spirit. Modern soldiers uh, don't necessarily use swords anymore sometimes, but generally they have high-capacity handguns, such as the Sig Sauer P-226 that's used by the Navy SEALs. These weapons are within reach, they are simple to operate, and they're deadly. The Word of God proclaims the will of God for our lives, and it cuts and pierces and does damage deep inside of our hearts. And that's a good thing, because our hearts are deceptive, and they want to do their own thing. The Word of God reveals how far short we have fallen of God's glory. But the Holy Spirit is the one who brandishes this weapon. We can't truly understand the Word of God until the Spirit regenerates and enlightens our minds. We need the Spirit's help to understand the Word. We are led by the Spirit into battle against not flesh and blood, but against the real spiritual enemy armed with God's truth, His righteousness, God's peace, faith, His salvation, God's Word, and one more thing. Paul doesn't have a word for it, but it's the radio. Prayer allows us and our allies to communicate with our commander. That's where prayer fits into this. He didn't have a word for radio, I guess. (laughs) But he talks about prayer in verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Our allies, your allies, are bound together by the Holy Spirit. Communication is probably the most important aspect of warfare. Being able to get updates, enemy positions to your allies on the ground is critical for victory. And as believers, we are connected to the Holy Spirit through our prayers for one another and for God's kingdom. It's like the radio. We're all dialed into the same frequency. We must be in constant communication with God, Paul says, at all times, for all the saints, both here across town and across the world, to be praying for one another. Your allies need your prayers because they are in the trenches too. And notice I said too, because brothers and sisters, you are in the trenches and you need to be in the trenches Paul urges believers to keep alert, to persevere, because it's easy to fall. It's easy to be, to be lax, especially when we feel like we won or something goes right. It's easy to just slip back into sleep. 
You know, that's one of my fears with this election is that some of us will feel like, okay, now we can move on. Don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. Keep alert, Paul says. Persevere. We need to pray that believers would have the words to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. That goes for us too. Pray for one another. Pray for, um, for your neighbor right here. Church growth begins with prayer for boldness to speak the gospel. Know your adversary, know your armor, and know your allies. I want to end just by reading this line from Martin Luther's hymn that we sang earlier. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Amen.